Good morning. We will now have our scripture reading from 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 27. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the air should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an air, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor, again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so comp composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is the word of the God, of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sonia. Let's pray as we open up God's word together. Jesus, we do thank you for this day. We thank you so much for the opportunity to hear from you, to read your word together. And we ask that you would grow us in this moment, convict us where we need to, encourage us where you can, enable us to go out and be you, your body, to this world. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, again, good morning. My name is Steve Yates. I'm one of the pastors here and we are uh, going on a new journey this week. For the next five weeks, we're going to be in a series we're calling Embodied, which is about the church. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means in just a moment, but I'd like to begin with a, kind of a thought experiment, if you will. If you were someone two, maybe even 4,000 years ago, and suddenly you saw a comet blaze across the sky, what would you think that was? What would you think the comet was? Well, for many people, they would think 
about the comet, they would interpret the comet according to a sense of the divine, of the supernatural. It would be something that would be far beyond the scope of what they could understand. It would be outside of themselves. Now, this would happen two to 4,000 years ago in pretty much most of recorded and unrecorded history. This would happen again and again and again because there would be a lot of things that you would not understand. There would be a lot of things that would seem to be beyond you, and you would be okay with that. It would be part of just your framework that things would come from outside of you, and you would, in fact, make sense of kind of the biggies of your life, things like meaning, value, beauty, morality, purpose. All of these things would be things that you would come up with whatever opinions you felt of them based on things outside of yourself. However, eventually, this would happen. Among lots of other things, this would happen. Life would begin to change. And in our history, life would change such that we would begin to understand pieces of the world in different ways we would begin to see that comet and we would eventually figure out what that comet is and we'd figure out what it was made of and we'd figure out what the the dust that it's sending off and we would track its trajectories and over time, what we would find is these same things that we had defined or taken definitions from outside of us would we begin to be shaped more and more and more, not from outside of us, from a top-down, if you will, but from inside of us. The things that are observable, the things that are imminent, that we can touch, that we can see, that we can experience. And again, you can't experience meaning. You You don't touch purpose or value. But even those existential qualities, those philosophical qualities, seem to have their basis, their grounding today in things that we can see and in things that we can touch. So much so that by the time of the the turn of the 20th century, uh, a fantastic philosopher and also a very broken human being named Friedrich Nietzsche would declare to the world that God is dead. God is dead, he said, and we have killed him. Now, Nietzsche was actually a, an atheist. He didn't believe in God at all. And yet, um, what he meant by that was, okay, we, we have no more need of anything outside of us. We have finally reached that point in society. We have reached that point in culture, in knowledge, in existence, that we don't need anybody else. We can now do what we are supposed to do, which is basically whatever we want. Now, there's great irony at the same time in this, because this perspective that Nietzsche talked about, it is the bread and butter of our society today. We care about freedom, agency, our own personal autonomy, our own ability to define for ourselves who we are, what we're here to do, what we want, what we don't want, how things affect us, what news is true or not. We hold that 
as the undisputable king of values in our world. And most people, when you just explain it like that, they're, they're excited about that. Students I work with very much are excited about being able to define for themselves the course of their life. Individuals, peers of mine, friends, they're very, very excited to be able to define who they are and not let some big institution on the left or some big institution on the right or even the labels of right and left to matter at all save that they define for themselves what they mean. In some ways, many would say Nietzsche was right. At the same time, that very freedom, that very agency, that autonomy that is so celebrated in our culture today is absolutely killing us. Since Nietzsche's famous saying at the turn of the 20th century, mental illness has skyrocketed by thousands of percent. Suicide has elevated so much so, and in fact, even today, the fastest growing um, segment of our society that is dealing with attempted suicide are eight to 12-year-olds. Freedom, in some respects, is killing us even as it is the thing that our society says, I will give up my freedom when you pry it from my cold dead hands. I want to park this idea just for a moment and explain what I mean by embodied. This idea of autonomy, of self-definition, um, it is pervasive, as I said, all over in our culture. One of the places that is incredibly pervasive in is in religion in America. I mean, to some degree, right, America was based on, founded on, um, an autonomy of religion, a freedom of religion, a belief that you could come here and decide for yourself what you were going to believe and what your church was going to believe and what your people were going to believe and how you were going to act, and you wouldn't have a state or a pope or really even a culture telling you otherwise. There are great reasons for that, right? We're Protestant. We're, we're, a, we're a Protestant church. We're here in America. I'm not saying ill of that to a degree. But there's also a piece of that that's really difficult, right? Because if we live in a place and a time where we have that sense of self-definition, that sense of self-agency and autonomy, and we can decide on whatever we want— then really what church becomes, what religion becomes in our society is sort of a marketplace. It becomes a time where it's like I have beliefs and I have preferences and I have felt needs and the church, the institution, whatever institutions remain, exists to meet those things or, or exist to be bodies of people who have like preferences and like needs and like beliefs, and then we gather together and we talk about and celebrate those things. And if those things change for any reason, well, great, we're in a society that doesn't dictate how many churches there can be, so you can get mad and you can leave and you can go to the church down the road. Or you can listen to a song you like and you realize your church will never play that song in that way, in that style, and you can go to this church over here. Again, a competing marketplace for ideas. It sounds icky, doesn't it? 
Sounds icky to wonder, well, did I pick this place for those reasons? Our series for the next five weeks is called Embodied because of this. It is icky to pick a church just based on what the church can do for you, right? So sometimes I think we even adopt a church version of JFK. Ask not what your church can do, ask what you can do for your church. But here's what I want to say. Over the next five weeks, this is what we're going to explore, and this is why we've entitled it not embody, but embodied. God does, in fact, want to do things for you and in you, in his church. You just being here, in fact, is a means by which God, through his spirit, acting in his people, is transforming you. But I would say this, these are not usually the ways that we would put on a banner outside, and they're not necessarily the ways that you would think when you come to a church, ooh, I think I'm going to join this church because I'm going to get changed like that. They're not what we would expect. And so that is what we're going to journey together with, learning about the church and what God is going to do in and through us because we're a part of this embodied church. This week, we're going to look at how that concept, the idea of God bringing us together, embedding us in a group of people, and embodying himself among that group of people, how does that challenge and bring healing to this idea of the self and how in some respects our exercising of our self-agency, our self-autonomy, our self-definition, our self-freedom is killing us. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Many of you will um, be aware of this illustration already. It's one of the more common ones that we talk about that's kind of entered into our parlance because of the Apostle Paul. Uh, but for the original hearers, it was kind of weird. It was weird to talk about yourself as a body. And I really just wanted to put this up at the very beginning um, to show you that we're not just kind of trying to fit something, uh, you know, a square peg into a round hole. If God is the one who has placed the parts in the body just as he wanted them to be, then we already have a reintroduction of the definition of what church is, this whole conversation, not coming from us, but coming from him. Paul uses this illustration in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to show, really to challenge some things that, that I think were natural or a little bit more natural in his context um, that really come at us. But we're already at his time in history being challenged. And one of the biggest ones was this introduction of the self as opposed to being a part of a group. Paul was a Roman citizen, and he exercised the rights of that citizenship a lot. It was very common at this time to still be thought of, to think of yourself um, the way still uh, many cultures that are not 
as, as if we want to use the categories of Western and Eastern, even though I realize that there is some um, nuance there that we you know, don't have the time to go into today, that is more of a familial basis, an Eastern idea still today. This idea that we are a we before we are an I. This was being challenged. And so Paul brings back up in 1 Corinthians 12, this idea that you're allowed to be a unique person. You're allowed to be an individual. You're allowed to have opinions. You're allowed to have a self. But you have to understand that you are that self as a part of a body. And that unique self has in fact been put in that body for a beautiful synergy that only God could do. We're not just a collection of a bunch of selves that somehow have weight and momentum because there's more of us in a room. Rather, God has knitted us together specifically to serve his purpose. And it's that knitting together that comes at, that combats, that heals our need for ourself. I want to parse that in three ways, if I could, this morning briefly. The first one is the idea of self-weakness. In verse 14 of chapter 12, Paul uh, begins saying, the body doesn't consist of one, but of many parts or members. Um, And we have this dialogue that begins where each individual body part begins to wonder whether they belong or not. So, as I said, you know, the, the, the grander story of religion as being this marketplace competing for people and competing for tithe money and competing for prominence, ironically, a lot of those same things play out within a church. Not that we're this sort of free-for-all that says, hey, we're all in it for ourselves and we just want to be more popular and we start to feel like this is high school all over again. But subtly, there is a sense that we all want to belong together. And one of the great evils of this kind of self-oriented, taking all of our meaning and belonging and beauty and value and purpose from ourselves and not from anybody else or anything else, one of the great evils and, and difficulties there is as much as I can say, you do you. You go along with whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anything or anybody. We can all have our own definitions of what is true and right and good. And that brings us into harmony because there's no fighting. That doesn't exist. Why? Because there are finite resources in our world. So it's great if Peter and I have a different vision of beauty until we're both in the clothing business together and we have to sell to all of you people our vision of what is beautiful or not. Suddenly, it doesn't matter whether or not I believe he's got a right to his belief about beauty. I'm going to beat his view of beauty into the dirt and put him out of business. We actually do that here at, at a church. We do that in the church. Not explicitly, not in a mean way, but here's how we do it. If I want to fit in, and I want to fit in with you people. I am never going to show you my flaws. I cannot be the squeaky wheel. 
I cannot be weak around you. Now, sure, I can't be perfect because arrogance about being perfect is its own weakness, right, in our culture. We're still Southern enough to believe that you got to have just a little bit of a flaw in there to be, like, relatable to each other. But I can't actually share with you, and I'm not talking about in town, I'm saying broadly in the church, I can't share with you my worst parts, my most broken pieces. Because if I did, you might not want to sit next to me. You might not want me to come to your Bible study. You might realize I'm too broken to teach your kid, or maybe I'm just too exhausting to um, be a part of your small group because then I'm going to have needs. You're going to have to meet those needs. This idea of self-weakness is infectious to us and even more so in a self-driven, somewhat rich culture like we're a part of because then when we do have those needs, we go to somebody private and anonymous to fix them. And now I am... 100% for counseling. I would uh, have experienced uh, God's blessing through being counseled in my life. Um, I have and actually do take medication for some things. I'd love to talk with you about that as well if you'd like to privately. But broadly, this sense that I can only be broken with somebody who has no connection to me, no relationship to me, no bearing on my life, is endemic of our society. Instead, what Paul says here is, no, you're a part of the body. It's actually a good thing to be broken and be a part of the body because then the rest of the body is aware of it. We call that pain. And as much as we hate it in our day and age, again, it is a good thing. If I don't have pain receptors and I put my hand on a hot stove, I have to smell burning flesh before I realize I probably shouldn't do that anymore. It is a good thing to be a part of a group of people and be not okay. Well, it's a good thing if that group of people is being shaped by the gospel of Jesus. Because then that group of people is a group of people who says, good, yes, you're broken, and so are we. Good, yes, you're broken. How can I love you the way Jesus has loved me? Yes, good, you're broken, wonderful. How can I sacrifice and leverage what God has given me for the sake of you, and how can you do the same thing? The gospel combats self-weakness because it says that the answer to self-weakness is not not being weak. The answer to self-weakness is being weak with other people who are also weak, who together have a connection to the only one who actually isn't weak in Jesus. As we navigate these ideas of meaning and value and beauty and morality and purpose, we get to not do them alone. We get to do them with other people, and we get to do them with other people, and it's not just some random debate about what is best. We do them with other people who are also being shaped by the Holy Spirit, who are trying to read God's Word the way we are, who have been through things that we haven't been through. 
Our world has, I think, often lost that sense of wisdom and earned wisdom, communal wisdom, wisdom that doesn't just come from being a part of something, but being a part of something with teeth, <laughs> with connection. The gospel gives us that. Random commercial in the middle of a sermon, um, Peter announced uh, the assessment that uh, some of our church leadership has set up. I don't want you to be scared of that. Spend just a second on it. Don't, um, don't miss it in your spam box. But COVID was really hard. My spiritual life took a hit. Yours may have as well. It's okay that it did. We want to know about it. We want to know you. We want to know how to love you. We want to know how you can love us better. And to be honest, when something that global happens to all of us, we can't just find out about what's happening in your life through personal relationship. That's why we're sending out this big thing to say, hey, it sounds like we're not all okay. How are we not all okay? And that's okay. That's what we're doing. We don't want you to feel like we're trying to rate ourselves or rate you guys. Because really, doesn't that get down to the purpose of a place anyway? And that's what gets at this second part, the idea of self-organization. Because in the text, after we spend a little bit of time with a body part feeling a little bit lost, with this body part wondering whether it actually um, should be in the body, a very inward struggle, we see a turn in verse 21 to an external struggle. Now, instead of the foot saying, I don't really belong to the body because I'm not like that really, really cool bicep over there. Now we have the foot saying, actually, I'm pretty awesome. More of you guys need to be feet. And I don't think the hair on the left toe belongs. We take that inward focus, that inward self-definition, that inward fear of being weak, and we move it outward, and we start to dictate who is allowed to be in the body or not. And again, we already looked at the scripture. God's the one who does that, right? I've talked with some people before. Um, I struggle with this because I'm a pastor. This is my job, and it's also my calling, and it's also my family. A lot of complicated overlapping circles there. Well, one of the weird things is, you know, I want this to be this vibrant, exciting place. And I want us to be doing, you know, exciting, vibrant things. I love feeling the momentum when God's people are, are moving and shaking and doing things together. And yet I know, well, I need to be reminded in my good days, I know, I am not the Christ. And so I'm not the one who makes the body. If I was, I'd like to tell you how to have a successful church here in Atlanta. And I promise you, in town's not doing it right. So take notes. This is how you have a successful church in Atlanta. You need the cast of friends. You need a group of early to mid-30-somethings who are beautiful and cool and will attract other cool, beautiful people. 
and then they inexplicably and paradoxically need to have a ton of time to do all the things that a church needs to do to be awesome. And they also somehow need to work jobs that they can afford gigantic apartments in the middle of Manhattan, right? And they can give all of that money to the church. That's what we need, right? Here's what we don't quote unquote need in that paradigm. We don't need somebody with a disability. We don't need somebody with an illness. We don't need somebody who's struggling with doubt. We don't need a family who's going to require a nursery that's going to require people to volunteer at that nursery who don't necessarily like kids who have to get recruited and so on and so forth. We don't need these inconvenient people. But right, that isn't at all what God does. Because God organizes a body, and there in that second paragraph, verse 21 through 26, he says, hey, actually, I've made the body, and there are lots of parts in that body, and some of them are presentable, some of them are not, some of them require more in certain seasons, and some of them require less. And because I'm the one who made the body, I know you need that, God says. Again, you know, if I were making the body, I would have, I want to put a spleen in. I don't know what a spleen does. Don't laugh. Some of you don't even, you can't find the spleen either, okay? <laughs> you start thinking about the parts the body needs, and you start thinking about lifting and strength, and you start thinking about looks, and you start thinking about smarts, and you start thinking about health and vibrancy, and we'll leave out all the pieces that actually requ are required for all of that stuff that we don't think about. The gospel in the church saves us. Jesus embodying himself among us saves us from ourselves and our tendency to be wise in our own eyes and our tendency to say, I know what's going to make for an awesome church. I know what's going to make for good people. I know what in town needs. I know who should be coming here and I know who shouldn't be coming here. It attacks those tendencies and says, no, my friend, you have no idea why God's brought that other person here, but maybe it's because of you. I've said this before a number of times, and I only say it on repeat because it's something God's done so much in my life that I don't remember many sermons. Very, by the way, very humbling for a preacher to hear, to, to, to work so hard on sermons and then realize I remember like 1% of the sermons I've listened to in my life. But I know for certain how Jesus has impacted my life has been when people I loved hurt me. And then instead of them just doubling down, they come to me and they ask me to forgive them. And then because I'm broken, I'm like, no way, heck no, I don't want to forgive you. And then Jesus challenges me and I get to forgive them. And then 20 years later, we look back on that and we go, man, how are we still friends? Glory be to God because he's done the gospel in our lives. 
Otherwise, this is a country club. Otherwise, we're comfortable because none of us have ever done anything to make each other uncomfortable. But we're real people, right? And if you stick around long enough in a body, you're going to get a tummy ache. You stick around long enough in a, in a body, you're going to feel pain. You're going to get old. You're going to feel arthritis. You're going to stop being able to help a friend move. And you're going to pay movers to do that instead. <laughs> Again, I joke about it because the ratio of beer and pizza versus how much work am I going to miss because of the pain I'm going to feel, that changed for me at like 28. So... That's what I mean by embodied. That's what Paul is talking about here. We're here not just to listen to the gospel. We're here not just to sing about the gospel. We're here not just to go out and take the gospel to people. We are here to experience the gospel together over and over and over again in each other's lives. This is why we can't look at church as a series of programs. We can't look at church as just something we consume. Now, very quickly, I do want to make something clear. It is easy to take what we're talking about here and take it to a logical conclusion that's unhealthy, and I do want to address that really briefly. I want to address it in this way. I've had a picture in my head that I haven't been able to get out of over the last couple of weeks, and I wanted to share it with you. This is an army ant death spiral. I did not know these were a thing. These are actually a thing. See, ants are blind, and ants um, smell instead of looking. And this is how an ant can find its way across your house in exactly the same path that an ant last week found its way across your house because it's not looking for some sort of trail. It's following a scent trail, a pheromone trail. Well, it is possible for ants to somehow lose that trail and begin to follow their own trail. And then somebody else comes along, and then somebody else comes along, and then somebody else comes along, and before you know it, you have this. What's crazy about biology here is that all of these ants are already goners. There is no way biologically for them to break out of this. I know some of you have lived in churches and been a part of churches, and it may have even been here, and if it is, I'm so incredibly sorry. I want to listen to that and grieve with you and repent. Um, I know you've been in places where sometimes it can feel like the church was just a place that said, we're going to be the ones to tell you how to think. We're going to be the ones to tell you what to do. We're going to be the ones to interpret this thing, the Bible, for you. Some of you have been deeply hurt by the church. You've been exhausted by the church. You feel even now like this. And there are times and places where it is appropriate and right for you to leave a church, even in town. All right, so I'm not trying to make this as some massive commercial that says stay, don't go. And we're not responding to some weird, you know, mass coup that's happening somewhere or something like that. I just want you to know this. I want you, and, and, and Jimmy Aiken taught me this. I'm not going to uh, take credit for it. We want you here 
to find a place where you can burn the brightest for Jesus the longest. And if that's not in town, that's okay. But what we do want is whatever choice you make, because you do have choice, because God did make you as a person, and he did call you to something, and sometimes he calls us to separate, and sometimes he calls us to move and go from one place to the other. The Apostle Paul's life is full of that. But regardless of what that looks like and how, let's not choose how we do that based on an outward preference or an outward need or someone doing something that makes us angry. Let's do it because in our experience of all of those things, we are experiencing God more and we're able to listen to him better and he's calling us to go somewhere else. Let's not be reactive as a people. Let's find healing, in fact, in the opposite. That, hey, if God's calling you to somewhere else, we can, like, cry and also send you with purpose and excitement and joy into the next stage of where God has for you. But let's see our experience of the church be based not in our comfort as to the elements of the church, but in our experience of the gospel being lived out in the relationships of the church over time. And that's why self-identification, let's see ourselves as a we, not as a mindless we that gets caught in a death spiral not as a we that says you're not allowed to question or doubt or ask. In fact, a we that invites all of that. Let's talk. I mean, I hope, well, okay, I'm going to say this a little strong. If I say something over the next five weeks that makes you angry, good. Not good in that I made you angry, but let's talk about it. I need you to grow as a pastor. I need you more than a pile of books a mile high. I need you. And you need each other. It's beautifully humbling to know that ultimately Jesus is in charge. None of us are the head. Not the pastor, not the elders, not the person who's been here the longest, not the person who's the smartest, not the person who's been through the most. Jesus is the head. Together, we embody him. And together, he teaches us, dwells among us, and embodies himself more than anything else we can do. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks. Thanks for being that. Thanks for taking off of our plate the need to be a perfect church. God, we continue to confess, I confess, my anxiety over that very thing because I want to be great. And I don't think any of us want to be at a church that we aren't proud of. 
But God, let us long, please, to be at a church for whom the thing we are proud of, the thing we boast in, is the cross. Is Jesus what you've done for us and Jesus what you're doing in and among us in all of our broken glory? Thank you for this place. Thank you for in town. Thank you for the ways in which you have blessed my life because of these people. Would you please bless us, God, with so much more of that for so much longer than we could ever understand or ask or imagine? Pray this in your name. Amen.